0: Hello and welcome to SheepCast, the official podcast of the American Sheep Industry Association. My name is Jake Thorne and I'm with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension in St. Angelo, Texas, and I'll be your host uh, for today's episode in which we're going to discuss genetic selection for parasite resistance in sheep and goats. Uh, So internal parasites are a critical issue to the U.S. sheep industry and and not just in the warm and, and humid parts of the country, but all across the nation. And with a limited number of anthelmentics, and in many cases, reduced effectiveness of these products compounding the problem, uh, successful producers are really taking a multifaceted approach to dealing with gastrointestinal nematodes, and prioritizing natural resistance in a breeding program is one of these approaches. And so to discuss more about this, uh, we have one of the premier scientists in the realm of parasites and small ruminants joining us today, Dr. Scott Bowdridge from West Virginia University. Uh, Dr. Bowdridge, would you like to introduce yourself and give us a little overview of your work, please?
1: Sure. Well, um... Thank you for the introduction. Um, I uh, grew up on a small sheep farm in California where we raised Rambouillet sheep no didn't know much about parasites didn't think about any of that stuff. I went to college to be a high school ag teacher, and that worked out for a little while and then i I left California and moved to maine and that 's where I first got exposure to this. There were some fellows there um, that were working on. Uh, parasites in small ruminants. And um, I got hooked into that project and working with an upgrade project of Katahdin sheep. So I did that for a little while and and um, did my master's at the University of Maine. And then I really wanted to get into the genetics and immunology of uh, what was happening in, in uh, parasite resistance in sheep. So I went down to Virginia Tech and did my PhD there and then got some extra training in in immunology and parasite immunology at a medical school in New Jersey before starting here. So the thrust of my research program at at WVU is to understand immunological mechanisms of how sheep respond to parasites, how they're able to clear it. And we use a breed called the St. Croix. And the St. Croix originated in in the Caribbean islands. Um, the constant exposure to hamonchus year-round. So you think of 12 months of the year, it's 85 degrees or higher. So you've got a warm, wet, humid climate. And these sheep, when we infect them in a controlled setting, can clear the infection on their first exposure. And then when we come back and challenge them, they completely clear it with no fecal egg count. So we've got a nice model breed to kind of understand the The effects of that and then we try to translate that into more commercially relevant breeds. So we were working with uh, uh, Texels and Katahdens and looking at how these sheep um, have different mechanisms of immunity to parasites.
0: Great, it's going to be really great to get your perspective uh, on this topic. So I think to start things off, uh, I want to start a little more broadly. Uh, As I mentioned, there are a number of different uh, practices that producers should take when dealing with internal parasites. And in your perspective, how important is it to include genetic selection or breeding for resistance in this multifaceted approach?
1: So I think breeding for resistance is the one thing that we have that the worms haven't developed resistance to. So I think a lot of the studies out of Australia and New Zealand where they've done selection for for 10, 15 years have demonstrated that the worms aren't becoming resistant to the the immune response of the sheep. And because it's such a, a broad and, and multifaceted response, the worms aren't becoming resistant to it. Like a drug that has a single point or a single um, mode of action, the immune response has multiple arms of immunity that can that can clear that parasite. So I think if you don't have genetic selection as a part of as a tool in your box to manage parasites in your sheep, then you're missing a big a big component
0: okay, so you touched on it just a second ago, uh, but to give our listeners some perspective, you know in the u s particularly what parasites are we mostly concerned with, and how do they harm the sheep or goats internally
1: so the ones that we're most concerned about right now i mean So we can talk about a whole broad range of parasites. There's coccidia, which is an intracellular parasite, and we're gonna kind of leave that one to the side. We know that a sheep taking a breath usually has coccidia. And and those are largely management issues that we can deal with and and work with that way. But when you start dealing with parasites that are resistant to drugs, like a lot of the nematode parasites that are gastrointestinal nematodes, Homuncus contortus is the one that you'll hear the most about. Um, that usually happens during the hot time of the year. They, they tend to like a, a warmer climate as opposed to Ostertagia or teeler is what we call it in sheep, and trichostrongylus. So those three, um, what the old parasitologists would call the hot complex, um, all have the same life cycle. They have the same uh, mode of entry into the animal. They have the same life cycle um, with minor differences, but those are the three that we worry about the most.
0: Okay, and so when we make genetic selections uh, combat to, uh, regarding sheep that can combat these parasites, you know, what traits are we selecting for?
1: So that's the, that's the, the big question right now is in terms of, of how we go about that. I, I think a lot of Australian uh, breeders would tend to think that selection for growth would actually nest parasite resistance within that. But I think if we want to make direct selection for this trait, we've got one trait and one measurement that seems to be working the best, and that's fecal A count. So the Katahdin breed has incorporated fecal A count breeding values into their um, into their management, and over the past 15 to 20 years, have made some marked reductions in uh, fecal on average and breed averages and fecal egg count EBVs, and are able to to select animals using fecal egg count.
0: Okay. And so regarding fecal egg count, you know, how heritable is that trait uh, from generation to generation? And are there differences between breeds in that category?
1: So that's where it gets tricky. So the herit- Measuring the heritability of fecal egg count depends on what time of year you measure it. So you'll see studies in the literature that have fecal egg count heritabilities as low as 0.1, as high as 0.45, but I think the general consensus is that fecal A count heritability kind of finds itself in that moderate range, somewhere between 0.2 and 0.35. So you can, so think about it like growth. If growth is moderately heritable, you can make a tremendous impact on selecting on growth. Same thing with with uh, parasite resistance or fecal A count, by putting some selection pressure on that while maintaining Um, your other traits of of economic importance, then I think that you can make progress, albeit it'll take a little bit longer, but as opposed to single trait selection. But if you can put some emphasis on that, you can certainly make improvement within your flock. Now, is that going to change between breeds? Certainly. Is it going to change between environments? Absolutely. So in our part of the country, we've got that warm, wet summer. In other parts of like where I grew up out in the desert in California. You don't see worms in the summertime. You see, you'll see worms in the spring, and actually, almost towards the winter time. So, it it it's a it's environmentally dependent and it's breed dependent. So you may have some breeds where you just don't have a large propensity of those genes for that trait in that breed.
0: Sure. So, so the heritabilities are going to vary. Absolutely. So. Uh, following this breed idea, is, is crossbreeding something that paras, uh, producers can use to combat parasites?
1: Well, sure, that would be the easiest thing to do, but you're not going to get a Rambouillet breeder to crossbreed with St. Croix. That ain't going to happen. So I, I think that's, can you crossbreed? Certainly. Can you? But I think the the real ticket with this is to find animals within your breed, right? Uh, crossbreeding can solve a lot of those problems but it can't solve if you're a, a wool producer crossbreeding with hair she cut it so i don't you know in a terminal cross if you're doing something like that absolutely right where you're just selling lamb that that's fine but if you've got a diversified market where you've got wool included in that and you're looking for concentrated genetics for parasite resistance um, crossbreeding ain't going to work for you
0: Sure. So for those producers that don't want an outcross uh, to a different breed or maybe a purebred producer, uh, what are some options regarding um, some tools that are available to them for still identifying those animals that are more or less resistant to parasites?
1: Well, I think the first thing is getting a fecal sample on those animals and doing that. Um, On the American Consortium for Small Ruminant Parasite Control, We've recently posted three labs in the US that will do fecal A counts for you for $5 a sample. That includes um, my lab in West Virginia, um, Jim Miller at uh, Louisiana State University Uh, will do that as well as you all at um, at Texas A&M. So I think that there's options across the country to have producers send in samples for a reasonable price to get an idea of where they stand and start making selection selection decisions based on that. But just doing the raw fecal A counts by themselves is not nearly as telling as submitting those data to NSIP. So including those data in in, uh, genetic evaluation programs like NSIP, which has recently opened up um, uh, terminal breeds for fecal A count and range breeds for fecal A count, I think there's there's an awful lot of opportunity to make some improvement, uh, at least over the next 10 years.
0: Okay, uh, so following uh, that National Sheep Improvement Program idea, uh, can you explain to our listeners just a little bit more about what an estimated breeding value is uh, and, and how that might be useful to them?
1: Okay, so the way I tell my students this is that the simplest value of a, of a breeding value is the heritability multiplied by the difference in individual performance, um, the difference in individual performance and the contemporary group average, right? So it's that reach, it's that difference, and you're trained how much of that difference is due to genetics. Now, take that formula and include all of that animal's relatives and their difference. That's what NSIP does for you. It takes all of the pedigree information and puts all that together into one value that uses animals that are all related. So the more connectedness there is within the um, um within the NSIP flock, uh, the more accuracy and the more reliability that you'll get in those numbers. So the more producers that are using NSIP, the better, the more reliable the data are going to be that come from that program.
0: Sure. And so one of the main components of, of collecting reliable data is eliminating that environmental factor that can vary from farm to farm or even on the same farm between different groups of sheep or goats. And so Mm -hmm. identifying contemporary groups is is really critical to this. Can you provide some insight on how to best identify a contemporary group uh, for making these comparisons?
1: So I think we've had some recent um, um, ASI webinars about contemporary groups uh, from the folks at uh, USDA Mark and they have identified and outlined really good methodologies with this. You have, and in, in from a producer standpoint, you'll typically, not all your lambs are born at once, right? So they're born in little clusters and little groups, and sometimes they'll actually group themselves. So if you can ID those animals that are born in a similar time, treated in a similar way, um, grazing at a similar time, that's how you contemporary group. You want to think about eliminating variation of age um, as one of our big components of all of that, or bottle feeding, or um, late-born lambs versus early-born lambs. So if you can keep that contemporary group window down to about 30 days, then you can you can identify those groups a lot easier. And that's the way we do it here at WVU, is just keep short contemporary groups together, groups that naturally break and split themselves apart, um, because that will be more reliable data. So that means that we have to submit data to NSIP in batches based off of contemporary groups. Um, But that's how, that's how we manage those data.
0: Okay. Is there a preferred age or, or time period throughout the year when you, you know, target collection of this information?
1: So there's two, Um, fecal A count breeding values in NSIP. There's a weaning fecal A count and a post-weaning fecal A count. The great thing about both of these measures is that they have a high genetic correlation and high phenotypic correlation. So that means that one is fairly predictive of the other. So if you can get a sample at weaning, that's fine and then if you don't have time to get a post-weaning sample or don't have the resources to do it, those post-weaning data will be automatically generated by NSIP. The accuracy values of those won't be as good as if you had a post-weaning fecal A count. Likewise, if you don't have time at weaning, you just take a post-weaning sample and that's done. So usually we like post-weaning samples to be done between 90 and 150 days of age, but there is no weight, there's no specific age that is associated with post weaning fecal egg counts so post weaning is post weaning right Right. but we do want separation between the time that you do a weaning fecal egg count and the time that you do a post weaning fecal egg count
0: okay now how about do those animals need to have some exposure to a certain amount of parasites to make that data more valuable is there a threshold value regarding the average fecal egg count for the for the group
1: yeah, this is where it gets tricky. So, when you do fecal egg count, so when I'm in the lab and I'm doing a fecal egg count, I take fecal samples, dilute them in a in a flotation solution, and I take some of that solution and load it onto a slide. When I'm counting eggs on there, every egg I see, I multiply by fifty. So if I have a total of ten eggs, that's a five hundred fecal that's five hundred eggs per gram of feces. It's the way the math works out on that. And that actually ends up being what we want the group average to be. If we want the average of that contemporary group of that flock to be 500 eggs per gram, um, that tells us if an animal is resistant or if an animal is more susceptible. So we do have a minimum requirement of 500. I think there's some conversation now with a lot of the animal breeding group and and the statisticians and the people are a lot better at this than I am about the reliability of that. Should we be looking at animals that are zero and how much that, that affects that? But you need to also demonstrate that the animals were exposed and the exposure is going to, the fecal account is going to tell you that there was exposure. So the 500 threshold is there to make sure that animals at least had had some exposure to parasites while they were grazing.
0: Sure. Can you expand on that, the, the reason for needed exposure prior to, to collecting an egg count and how the immune system's response uh, fits in? Yeah. And- so
1: the, well, like I, I was talking about with the St. Croix, when I give them their first, their, so I can raise lambs in a elevated floor barn or, or in a feedlot barn where they have no access to grass and no access to natural infection, So when I give them larvae their first time, that's their first exposure to it. And they will develop a fecal A count, but then they clear it. So that's what we want those animals to do. We want them to get exposed to larvae. We want them to generate an immune response to it and then get rid of it. And that's the way immunity works when everything is in harmony, when everything's working together in that animal system. When it's not working, then that's when those animals will continuously get higher and higher and higher fecal a counts. And the, the immune system in a sheep is different in its response to antigen than the immune system in a human or a cow or other species. Sheep have a very weak threshold for challenge, for, anti, for pathogen challenge. So we've all known this. We've seen this before. Um, sheep have a weak will to live sometimes. And if you get, if you overwhelm their system with the parasite load, not only are you dealing with all of the effects on blood and blood drainage from the, from homuncus, but you also get to the point where the sheep's immune response just stops. It stops working. There's so much over, the immune system's overwhelmed. So then you get all that shut down. So we want to make sure that animals get exposed and develop immune response to that so we can select those animals from the ones that never uh,
0: developed an immune response to it. Sure so you said something that I think our listeners will find really interesting you made the comment that you give sheep certain larva uh, mm-hmm. can you can you expand on on what you mean by that by giving those lambs uh, L3 lar- larva or hermachus larvae?
1: Yeah so we mimic a natural infection by giving them a single bolus dose of, of worms. So if you think about a lamb that goes out and that's grazing, let's say that you you turn your sheep out and they babies are mimicking what mom's doing, right? So a lamb's going to have a functional rumen right around 30 days of age. Then we start seeing that rice. So if you typically have springborn lambs, you're going to see rice that's going to trail about 30 days after mom started getting fecal egg counts. So, those lands are gonna are going to mimic that, or going to um, develop a fecal leg count. The way we do it is we actually take two weathers, or two or three weathers every year, and these are Suffolk weathers that I know are gonna get infected, that are gonna maintain an infection, that are never gonna clear it. We'll keep them persistently infected. Then I put diapers on those sheep, collect their poop, take it into the lab, put it in an incubator for seven days, And we have this unique mechanism to sort out um, larvae because larvae like to swim and they like to swim down. So the larvae will actually migrate through a filter and swim down the neck of this funnel in water and separate themselves from the rest of the fecal material. So we take those larvae and then we give each lamb in these infection experiments, we give each lamb 10,000 larvae. And then the larvae established, we get about a 10% establishment rate inside the animal. So if I give them 10,000, I expect to find 1,000 larvae in there. But if they're resistant, like the St. Croix, oftentimes during a challenge infection or the second time we give it to them, the most I find is 10, 15 so only
0: 1%. Right. That's really interesting. And so when you're measuring these animals' ability to combat these parasites, we've talked a lot about fecal egg count. Uh, and on the lambs that you're measuring a- as well, are there other factors that you are assessing? Uh, anemia or, or something yep. else?
1: So because homonchus is a blood feeder, that's our primary measure. Anemia is our, our measurement of effect of that parasite. So Typically, once we give them the the L3 stage or the the infective stage larvae and those larvae develop to L4s and ultimately adults, we'll start seeing uh, pack cell volume go down. So that's the amount of red blood cells and the total blood volume. Once you start getting down to 15%, then through our animal welfare office on campus, we we have to stop the infection. Everything's got to stop and shut down. I've seen samples as low as eight or nine percent. So the blood, when you take it, will look like Kool-Aid. You can see through it. So if those animals get supremely or severely anemic, they're trying to replace blood volume with fluid, right? So that's what causes bottle jaw. And we talk about the lowest point of um, the, the lowest point on the animal being their head on sheep. It doesn't make sense sometimes, but when the sheep's head is down in the grass eating, that's the lowest point in their body. So typically with cattle, we think of edema building up in their chest or their brisket because their head's not down eating as much as as sheep are. Sheep have their head down. That's why you get bottle jaw and that fluid will leak out of veins. So the sheep, your body has a a compensatory mechanism for loss of blood volume. And this is what happens. So I... Not many people have seen this. You'll see it in textbooks. It's called acute hemonchosis. So when you have an animal that is effectively bled out of, um, by homonchus, and this happened to me once. I bought a, a Suffolk ram at a, a performance sale or performance test sale. Great ram was going to do good things for our Suffolk breeding program. I dewormed him, did all the right things that you're supposed to do, put him out on pasture with ewes. Seven days later, he's dead on the fence. So I the vets called me and they wanted me to come out and look at them. So I went out and looked at them. We're trying to figure out where all the sheep's blood is gone. So we opened this sheep up about seven or eight hours after it died. There was no rigor mortis, there was nothing. The animal was still bleeding. And that's odd. That shouldn't happen. So we we're thinking all these metabolic diseases that could be causing this and looking at it. its lungs were pale, livers pale, kidneys are pale, everything where blood drains, there's no blood, right? And I said, you know, just out of the hell of it, let's look at his gut. So we did that. We opened up his intestines, and that's where all this animal's blood was. It was all in his intestines. So we opened up the stomach, and it was like a shag carpet of worms in his stomach. And that's that ram had died, had gotten so many um, L3 and L4 stage larvae that there were so many of them in his stomach that they bled him out while he was alive. So that's that's the worst case scenario, right? So there's an eighteen hundred dollar ram that's dead on a fence line. Um, it happens, but we were running out of larvae anyway, so that all kind of worked out.
0: There you go. Well, uh, you know, we're we're starting to get toward the end of our time. You know, is there something or one or two take home messages that you can provide to somebody who wants to kind of start down this path of selecting for genetic? Uh, Resistance to parasites. You know, is there is there somewhere where they can really start to make uh, quantifiable progress?
1: So the first thing that I would do to start, if if this is where you're heading in, is go to the um, American Consortium for Small Ruminant Parasite Control. It's a tough name, but the the website's called Wormax.info, and there's a lot of information for producers. It's it's producer type information. help you get started and get your mind around this thing then the second thing that i would do is start doing fecal a counts even if you're not submitting data to nsip what do you think that you have a parasite problem or worms not or worm or sheep just not responding well or doing well to your dewormer control and if you you're thinking that you're maybe in an environment where this doesn't happen i've had high school students from a uh, There's a gal on my judging team in california she she had a high school group that wanted a science fair project. They were doing this in Escalon, California. so right in the middle of Central Valley, um, when they deworm sheep with albendazole, the fecal lay count went up. So finding some of these things where maybe your dewormer working. So if you go to that website, and also find the submission information for any of the three labs in the U.S. that are offering this service to producers, we will also do fecal egg counts after you deworm. So if you give us a fecal egg count at deworming and then another fecal egg count two weeks later, we can tell you how well your dewormer is working as well. So I think that there's some information, and that's where I would start. If you're already enrolled in NSIP, and you're already doing the due diligence of submitting all the scan data, the weight data, um, birth weight, you know, all the uh, birth type, weaning types, all those kind of things, this is just one more piece of information. So when you're running those animals through, grab a fecal sample, and even if you don't get it on every single lamb, that's okay. Send it in. We'll do all the leg work for you. We'll do the fecal egg counts for you um, at $5 a sample, which is pretty reasonable. Get those data back to you so you can submit to NSIP. So I think that there's, if you're already enrolled in the program, this is just one more thing to add um, more value to NSIP. If you're not in NSIP and you're just toying with the notion of doing this, let's start with just doing some fecal samples and seeing if your deworming is working
0: absolutely that's great advice all right last question you know what's next we've talked about kind of the work that you've worked on and and what we've learned now you know what what is the edge of the research that that's being done right now and and what are some tools that maybe are going to be available to producers in the next five years
1: so i think there's there's a, a large consortium of um of research that's being done in the U.S. on Katahdin, starting with Katahdin sheep and looking at genomic um, enhanced EBVs. So I, I think that's one thing, especially for Purdue, this is a hard to measure trait. It's not, doing fecal egg counts, are, it's not easy. I can do 10 an hour, right? And with my lab group, we can do 100 in about an hour and a half. And that's just having people around. So it's a hard to measure trait. And I think that we can take advantage of some of those genetic technologies that are available and that other species have used quite defectively for um, for other traits. So I think that's one thing. I think that the thing that that we're working on here is trying to be able to identify if an animal is parasite resistant before they're even born. So I think that's really the golden ticket with this, is can we identify animals that are going to be resistant before they're born? And finding that one trait, that one thing that dominates this whole plethora of traits that affect this phenotype finding that major trait will allow us to to um, be able to predict whether those animals are are more resistant than others Absolutely. so that's where we're going
0: okay well thank you very much for your time uh, dr bowdridge if, if anyone has any questions can they get a hold of you uh through email or, or through your office there at the university
1: yeah, absolutely. Email or phone call. I'm happy to answer questions for anybody nationwide.
0: Okay. Well, that's great. Again, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, you shared an excellent perspective on, on this topic of genetic selection for parasite resistance. Um, I want to reiterate the, that website you brought up, Wormex.info. That's a great resource for producers to go to online uh, to learn more about this topic. So with that being said, thank you all for joining us uh, for SheepCast, and we hope that you all have a nice day.